Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. We're pretty much everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. And I welcome you to our program, our topic for this show is living beyond COVID. Now, I know, yes, we've, we've done a lot of COVID shows <laughs> in the past. This one is going to be a little bit different, though, because even in the midst of this crisis, um, I do think that we are at a point. Now, this is not over, ladies and gentlemen. I am not saying that. I'm going to preface everything by saying that I am not saying that the pandemic is over. I am not saying that everything needs to go back to normal. Um, now or tomorrow for that matter. Uh, but what I am saying is that there is life, I think, for all of us beyond COVID, right? This is a a disease that for the past almost nearly two years that we've been dealing with, and I think we've learned a lot in this two-year period. And I think we've gotten to a point where um, really in, in terms of just facing reality, right, um, we're not going to get rid of this And it is something that we are not only going to learn, have to learn to live with, but ultimately to live beyond COVID, right? Life must go on. And I truly do think with the knowledge that we have of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the number of advances that we've seen in the last two years, everything from being able to write to test for this illness to knowing how it is transmitted predominantly to the the availability, right, the development and availability of vaccines and um, even therapeutic options for those that do acquire the infection. We've come a very long way, and I think we we really can begin to um, really think about how we're going to live in a COVID world, right? This virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is not going anywhere, ladies and gentlemen, and I think what will really put this into perspective is actually we just do a brief flashback, right? About 100 years ago, we had the 
initial outbreak of the Spanish influenza, um, mainly in 1918. Now, actually, that's just a misnomer. <laughs> it's not the Spanish influenza, right? Um, it was really the Spanish that really started to talk about this and really put it on the map as a problem, right? Um, that was really on the horizon and that the world had to deal with. It was the Spanish. So we want to give them credit, right? Shout out to, um, you know, Spain for really just bringing this to light um, way back then. But initially the outbreak started in Candace right here in the United States, at least from what we know, some of the first cases seen uh, amongst soldiers stationed in Candace. And unfortunately, this was at a time very conflict ridden time, right? World War One governments not really wanting to share information amongst one another, therefore not wanting to acknowledge the spread of infection amongst their soldiers in a time of war and secrecy. And so, yes, it, it had to be Spain that really brought this to the brought this to the forefront um, of knowledge in the international community. But just one contrast right uh, then to what happened uh, recently with the onset of the COVID outbreak. Just think about this, ladies and gentlemen, right, because we are empowered. I want you to understand that we are empowered with what we have available to us today especially when it comes to information. This was an instant where the virus was spreading much faster, um, extraordinarily faster than the information that we had available to us, right, 100 years ago. Um, and it's, it's almost the reverse nowadays, right, where information travels so fast and so widely um, <laughs> in some ways, right, uh, the spread of information, the way that we share information, um, has been at times more problematic than probably probably the virus um, itself. But just going back to that period, we had this initial outbreak, first wave in spring 1918. It was actually a pretty mild wave. The second wave, much worse as the virus spread faster and led to many more deaths. And within one year, ladies and gentlemen, the average life expectancy here in the United States decreased more than 12 years. We're talking about 20, and these are just estimates, very rough estimates, uh, 20 to 50 million people lost their lives around the world, 675,000 of them being Americans. Um, there are some estimates running as high as 100 million as far as the um, total death toll from these initial stages of that outbreak. But I'm going to fast forward even from that history, ladies and gentlemen, Right. And um, really some lessons that I think can be learned from that. Um, and that one thing, when we go towards the end of or that initial outbreak um, or at least that critical period, two things that really led to this outbreak being controlled to a degree. Right. And, and really this disease becoming more endemic. And I'm talking about influenza, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Uh, during this outbreak. It was public health measures put into place. That's first and foremost, right? When we talk about what happened then, everybody was blindsided, including the scientists and medical community, right? In dealing with this crisis, um, everything happening so fast and the ability to share and learn, right, amongst each other um, as far as information about this virus, um, they were very limited. But one of the things that they did, ladies and gentlemen, was that 
public health measures, including mask wearing, social distancing, some of the same stuff we've been advocating today, that was part of the solution when it came to getting that outbreak under control. So that's one. And then the second part to that, um, and this is the, the large consensus amongst scholars that have studied this, right, to ad nauseum, was that immunity played a big role. In this case, so many people being infected around the world with that influenza virus that it essentially led to widespread immunity amongst the population. And therefore, the virus was not able to cause as severe disease in so many individuals so quickly as it spread around the world. So just keep those things in mind as we go forward, because, right, the point of this program going forward is going to be really talking about a guide to living with COVID-19, right? We live with influenza. We have learned so much uh, about that virus. We've learned how it is transmitted. We've learned how to prevent transmission. We've developed vaccines that um, have been effective in uh, not only preventing one from getting the flu, but even if they came down with the infection, that they would have less severe illness from it, right? And a lot of those lessons from yesterday, very applicable today. And that is really going to set the the tone, right, or the template for us as we talk about our guide to living with COVID-19. And so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be a five-step guide to living beyond COVID-19, right? If we want to talk about getting to any sense of quote-unquote normalcy or what life used to be in a pre-COVID world, well, I think these five steps, um, and I think many would agree that these five steps are going to be paramount. They are going to be paramount. And so um, I will outlay them for you right now. Step one is going to be vaccination. I know probably somebody already heard that word and said, I'm going to tune out, right? Because he's going to talk about what I don't want to hear about. I've already made up my mind about this. Well, I have to talk about it because this is something that is going to be critically important if we want to live beyond COVID-19. Step two is going to be masking, ladies and gentlemen, right? No surprise. There's no surprise. I'm laying it out for you now. So you can tune out if you want now. You can stay tuned and learn how to live beyond COVID-19. But that is indeed step two, masking. Step three is going to be social distancing and testing. This is nothing new either, ladies and gentlemen, but some really important points that I think we can highlight that will get us in that mind frame, right, about what we can do to keep ourselves, um, to keep our loved ones safe, our community safe when we talk about uh, social distancing and testing. Number four is going to be uh, knowledge of variants and staying informed. That is going to be the biggest thing um, probably when it comes to step number four is just information, right? How we gather, how we utilize, and even how do we share information amongst each other to keep ourselves for, uh, safe regarding COVID-19. And then finally, advocating advocating for change in our society to help us really just deal with situations like this better. Um, everything from the, the science and the research, right, that needs to be done to get ready for the next pandemic. There will be more, ladies and gentlemen. This is not the end all and be all here, um, but also, right, what changes in society need to be made to really help us build capacity, 
help us build resilience in our systems and so that we won't be clobbered by the next big outbreak, right? Not just um, in terms of the severity of disease, the spread of the illness, but even when we talk about the effects on our society, the effects on our mental health, our well-being as a whole. Step one. So let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, the first step is we have to get vaccinated. Now, yes, I am a fan of individuals making this personal choice when it comes to vaccination, right? Either to get vaccinated or not. But I do have to make the case for vaccines, especially when we talk about living beyond COVID-19. Vaccines are highly effective and safe. Um, especially the vaccines developed for this particular illness. And we have a number of, of them available, ladies and gentlemen. They will likely become even safer and more effective as we go forward. And one thing, if we go back to what we said, right, that history lesson with the Spanish influenza, that 1918 outbreak, herd immunity was a big deal, right, in terms of Individuals all throughout the world acquired that infection. Um, unfortunately, you know, estimates as high as 50 million deaths could be as high as 100 million, more or close to 700,000 here in the United States alone um, in that very short span, ladies and gentlemen. But one thing, right, that got us through that crisis was mass immunity. Unfortunately, for the pretty much all of the individuals during that time, Right. This immunity was acquired naturally. Right. It was a natural immunity through infection that was acquired that led to um, us getting that outbreak under control. Fortunately, in the 21st century, ladies and gentlemen, we have the advent of so much technology, um, everything right from what we said uh, in terms of information spread, getting information out there, learning about this illness as quickly as possible. And that was one of the major benefits. We are some of the most fortunate beings in history because of the information that we have available to us and how we can share and distribute that information. And one of the first things that happened at the outset of this crisis was that they sequenced the genome of this virus, right, which allowed um, these researchers to begin working on a vaccine right away. Right. And so that is how this developed so quickly was that one, um, they were able to sequence the genome of this virus pretty much from day one, send that around the world and everybody, um, all of these researchers working on vaccines uh, as quickly as possible, sharing information amongst another uh, one another. And fortunately, with big investments from governments all around the world, especially here in the United States, with Operation Warp Speed. And if there's anything I'm gonna give President Trump credit for, I'll give him credit for that, okay? Um, this is not a political thing. That's one thing that I hope we can scratch going forward. Um, this is not about politics, but it worked, ladies and gentlemen. And today we have available to us highly effective and safe vaccines to help us deal with this crisis. And one thing I wanna point out, there has been no mass die-off of vaccinated individuals <laughs> Um, and I can uh, say that I've witnessed firsthand that the opposite is true. Um, unfortunately, individuals that uh, are not vaccinated are bearing the brunt of this illness right now when it comes to complications from COVID-19, including death. 
In a recent CDC mortality and morbidity weekly report, one study found that from April to December 2021, basically right, throughout the majority of the Delta variant surge and with the emergence of Omicron, people that were fully vaccinated and boosted had the most protection against infection. During that period, unvaccinated people had more than 15 times the risk of death before and after the Delta variant came on the scene. And that is, of course, in comparison to fully vaccinated individuals, right? 15 times the risk of death in individuals that are unvaccinated. And unfortunately, this discrepancy was even greater when it came to comparing fully vaccinated um, and boosted individuals, right, compared to the vaccinated. So if you were boosted, um, meaning you got that third dose um, of the of, of the vaccines, you had even more protection, ladies and gentlemen. And now I do want to pivot briefly to talk about breakthrough uh, infections. I think there is a misunderstanding when we talk about vaccines, ladies and gentlemen, and especially um, in dealing with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. There's a little misunderstanding. I will take some credit for that, right? Um, personally, but even uh, as far as a community um, in medicine and a scientific community and how this was sort of promoted, right? As far as the vaccines against this illness against COVID-19. I think we really got people off track in saying that, hey, this is going to 100%, right? If you get the vaccine, you're not going to get the infection. It's done deal, you know, super effective. And um, the initial data, I remember the initial uh, trial data that was coming out, or actually the phase three data, so not the initial data, but the phase three um, trial data for Pfizer-BioNTech that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2020, um, I remember looking at the numbers, right? Um, and and one thing that the vaccines were very good at doing was preventing a person from acquiring the infection, especially with the alpha variant, the initial um, strain of COVID, right? And I think we got off track in really just talking about this is going to stop it in its tracks. Nobody's going to get infected if you get vaccinated. Um, whereas I think, and, and this was common knowledge, um, I think especially um, amongst the medical community, but I don't think it was communicated well in that, right, there's always a possibility of, quote unquote, breakthrough infection, meaning in individuals that have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, right? So two weeks after uh, their, their shot, their second shot, um, or at least with the mRNA vaccines, two weeks after their shot, um, that second shot, or two weeks after that uh that one shot, that single shot with the Janssen or Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But long story short, uh, I think we missed the mark in that the way this was promoted, right? And just absolutely shutting down individuals getting infected, that was incorrect. Or at least um, the limitations of vaccines were not readily communicated, I think. Um, and this was something that we knew. I think there are many individuals out there, not in medicine, that kind of knew this, but um, there are individuals that felt like they were misled, right? In that when we started to see breakthrough infections, especially with the emergence of these variants, um, particularly Delta and Omicron, especially, 
um, I think that really led people to believe truly that, oh, this doesn't work. I mean, you had the vaccine and you got infected. What's the deal? Um, you know, and especially when we, we look at the data um, about the spread of this illness, knowing that, right, fully vaccinated individuals that acquire the SARS-CoV-2 infection, especially with these newer variants, they can still transmit the virus, right? So it seems like these vaccines are not working, but that is not true. Um, and when we talk about expanding that defini definition of vaccine efficacy, effectiveness, right, whether these these interventions are working, quote unquote, um, one of the main reasons to vaccinate, ladies and gentlemen, and this is not just with COVID-19, this is with vaccines in general. One of the main purposes is to not only prevent infection, hopefully, but to prevent individuals from having complications from the infection that they are vaccinating right or being vaccinated against um, and so in this case with COVID-19 the vaccines are effective ladies and gentlemen and I'll tell you they're effective at both actually there was a another study featured in the weekly morbidity and mortality reports put out by the CDC and in the month of December, around a time actually that Omicron was becoming the dominant variant, um, it was found that unvaccinated adults had five times the risks of acquiring SARS-CoV-2 infection, right? This was in comparison to vaccinated adults um, that had had a booster shot, okay? And so I say that to say that the vaccines do in fact prevent infection. OK, unvaccinated individuals, five times the increased risk of just acquiring the infection, meaning they just test positive if we want to look at it as that. And if you want to get more granular with that, right, you get into more detail when we talk about individuals, right, not just acquiring a SARS-CoV-2 infection, because there's a difference. Right. I can test positive for COVID for SARS-CoV-2 right now. Right. I could potentially be asymptomatic and test positive right now as I am speaking to you. But does that mean I have COVID-19, right? The disease caused the disease syndrome, the syndrome, right? The headache, the dizziness, the cough, the nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, the loss of my taste and smell, right? If I were to test positive right now for SARS-CoV-2, meaning having that virus in my body, I would not meet the definition for COVID-19. Nor would I meet the definition for severe COVID, right, um, where I'm requiring oxygen because my oxygen levels are dropping or I'm showing signs of organ dysfunction and failure, right? That's severe COVID-19. COVID-19 is the clinical syndrome having symptoms, right, in the context or have after having tested positive for a SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so there's a big difference. There is a big difference, right? And going back to that number, right? Unvaccinated adults having five times the risk of just testing positive, right? Um, just off of the vaccine alone, right? Individuals that have been vaccinated and boosted, right? Are five times less likely than the unvaccinated, right? They're five times less likely to acquire the infection, right? We have um, unvaccinated adults that are testing Right. Five times higher the rate than 
vaccinated and boosted individuals. Sorry, I kind of flipped that back and forth, but it's true, right? The vaccines prevent infection. That's one. But then when we talk about individuals developing COVID-19, so those symptoms, the nausea, the vomiting, the headaches, the dizziness, having to miss work, you know, not feeling like themselves. Oh, then the rates are even higher amongst the unvaccinated, right? Because um, individuals that have not been vaccinated are much more likely to develop symptoms if they acquire a SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, and so that's another thing, another another point where we see that the vaccines are very effective, extraordinarily effective. And then when we talk about individuals developing severe COVID-19 and complications related to COVID-19 that require hospitalization, that require intensive care, right? Intensive unit, intensive care unit type care um, or higher level specialty care, then the rates Right. The discrepancy between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated become even larger um, where we see unvaccinated individuals at many times more risk of developing complications from covid-19. Everything from respiratory failure and organ dysfunction and failure and ultimately death. Right. Those numbers are much higher, much higher for those that are unvaccinated and they are much lower for those that um, are not only vaccinated, right? If you're vaccinated, you have a substantially lower risk of having all of these complications. But if you're boosted, ladies and gentlemen, oh man, then you're extraordinarily unlikely to suffer complications from this illness. And so that's it. I'm gonna leave it at that, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going any further. I know you heard enough about the vaccine, um, but this all shows that the vaccine works any which way you look at it. From stopping infection to keeping people out of the hospital and, and keeping people from dying, right? I'm not going to take it any further. And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, you can always hit us up on our homepage um, on Podbean. You can also hit us up on Facebook, on Spot, on uh, Twitter, wherever you can find us on social media, Instagram. And I, I will I'll go back and forth with you. I'll talk to you about it, answer your questions, your concerns. Um, if you're trolling and you're just being there to be negative and not learn anything or to have um, a meaningful conversation right about this, then I might not engage you as much. Um, but it's not personal. It's just that, you know, I, I really want to spend time with individuals that um, are willing to right, learn more so that they can make the most informed decision possible when it comes to vaccination. And so with that said, we are going to move on. Step two. We have to get our mask game up, ladies and gentlemen. They are definitely effective in preventing the spread of SARS-CoV-2. Now, are they effective when it comes to reducing, right, the dose of infectious viral particles, right, or what you're taking in? Um, are they, right, effective when it comes to even potentially decreasing the severity of COVID-19 in the wearer of the mask? Well, the data does not show that to be the case, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and so unfortunately, yes, they're not as effective, right, at protecting the wearer per se, but they definitely are effective in preventing the spread. And with that said, I think one thing that we need to understand is that masks are not an alternative to vaccination, right? So 
Um, again, right, there's five steps, ladies and gentlemen, that we're outlining. So you got to do step one. Um, we strongly advocate doing step one. Now, I do want to say that some common sense applies here as well, right? So I'm going to present you with the scenario of somebody sneezes in your face. Achoo! Let's think about it. Would you have some protection from all the nastiness? Just think about the droplets coming out, right? That's a, I, I would picture this in slow motion maybe happening, right? And we see all of the droplets, the uh, snot, the mucus, you know, maybe we see a little bit of, uh, you know, nasal hairs embedded in some of the dry. I don't know, whatever. Just think of the grossest picture, slow motion, this stuff coming at you and your unmasked face. Right. Um, <laughs> and then maybe right, if we, we maybe have uh, some special power, we can get down to the microscopic level and we can see individual viral particles coming out of there. Maybe a little bit of SARS-CoV-2 particles. Um, and you got an unmasked face, <laughs> right? Um, now let's contrast that with the same thing happening. We have this uh, really disgusting sneeze, all of this nastiness coming toward us at lightning speed, right? Because you're within, you know, we got to picture ourselves in a nice close distance. I want to, I want you to get the the maximum dose of this stuff, right? And you have a, a mask on. I'm pretty sure you have more protection, right? Some of those viral particles are not going to make it um, up into your nose by having that mask in place. And so, yes, I think there is some common sense that applies here um, and actually some real truth to the fact that, yes, the masks are protective for the individual as well. However, we do have to acknowledge that the right, the biggest benefit is preventing the sp spread of the, the, the illness um, at this point. And this is what we're seeing um, in the research at this point, ladies and gentlemen. So it's effective for the wear. Yes, it can prevent, right, um, maybe some of the virus being transmitted to an individual, but the biggest protection is in preventing the spread. And again, let's flash back to, right, the early 20th century, early 1900s with the Spanish influenza, um, that pandemic, one of the crucial, as we said, one of the crucial things that led to um, that disease sort of um, dying down. That's a poor word right, to use, but at least in terms of that crisis at hand with that pandemic, one of the things that got it under control was public health measures like masking, right, on a large scale amongst members in the community, in the public. And so with that said, right, this is this is crucially important as we go forward, right? Step two, masking. We must do this, ladies and gentlemen. And one thing I think that has caused a lot of frustration in dealing with all of this is that we've seen the larger public health entities, um, especially the CDC, kind of, it seems to be flip-flopping, right, um, on recommendations when it comes to masking. Um, we've seen it change over time to, hey, at the initial stages of this outbreak, especially um, when things were really just crazy in New York City in spring of 2020, I was there and I can tell you there was a night and day difference from the time where everything, right? There was no mask. <laughs> There's no mention of mask. If anything, um, our public health officials discouraged us in the public, right? It discouraged people from wearing masks um, initially um, because the data was not there in terms of protection to the individual, 
right? Um, it was pretty well known that, that that would not be the most protective measure. And if anything, um, at that point in the pandemic, in trying to conserve resources for hospital personnel, individuals that are on the front lines, um, taking care of patients or in crucially important essential worker jobs, right? We wanted to conserve those supplies for those individuals. And so, um, yeah, it seems like the CDC is flip-flopping on these recommendations. However, this is science, ladies and gentlemen. This is science. Now, I would say to a degree, right, um, as there is always some politics involved, but I do think that largely the CDC has made recommendations that are um, in many ways consistent with the science. And one of the one of the crucial areas, I think, where people really got upset was when the CDC um, suddenly said, hey, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks. Right. Remember, this is before um, the Delta variant emerged and before some other worrisome variants really came to light. Um, but that was to a degree grounded in science, ladies and gentlemen. Right. In that, um, as we have previously stated, the how how effective the vaccines were and are right allowed them to say hey maybe these individuals don't have to be masked up all the time because they are much less likely to acquire the infection much less likely to spread the infection um, at that time but when we learned about these variants cropping up that could cause breakthrough infections right in vaccinated individuals um, and also to the degree that vaccinated individuals acquiring these infections could still spread the illness Right. Those recommendations changed. And they said, hey, you should mask indoors, even if you are vaccinated um, and especially if you're going to be in pr close proximity to other people. Right. Those masks were then recommended um, again. And so one thing I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, is that these are not going to be concrete. I don't think at any time, um, either now or going forward. Right. It really is going to depend largely on what is happening amongst us when it comes to COVID-19. And so don't be surprised if the recommendations change. I also want to say that there is hope. Um, and this even right came from uh, Dr. Fauci himself, actually, in a, a recent interview that he did on The Daily. Um, it is a podcast that is um, featured by The New York Times. And he actually said he envisions a day, right, where we might not have to wear masks. We probably won't need them indefinitely. If actually, he was confidently said that, right, masks will not be needed indefinitely. Um, for the most part, that's what he said. Um, and that really boils down to, right, how much the virus is spreading in any given environment, what is happening, um, you know, in terms of the larger communities, right, that is going to determine the recommendations on masks. And so it's not anyone flip-flopping per se, it's more so, right, the recommendations changing in real time with what is happening on the ground with the virus itself. And so just to give you some, some guidance on this um, as we go forward, because it is so important, I'm just gonna lay out some basic, right, large overview of guidelines on when to mask. And so, Individuals that are two years old and older when indoors should wear a mask, especially if they're not vaccinated, right? Individuals not vaccinated, they should especially wear a mask. And that goes back to what we said before, in that individuals that are not vaccinated are more likely to acquire the infection, 
they are more likely to, to therefore spread the infection. Um, and so it is, and also, right, going back to what we said with the vaccines, they are totally effective in every way, any which way you look at them, essentially. Um, and especially if you are not vaccinated, you're more likely to have a bad outcome, especially if you have some medical problems, if you're older in age, um, right? With all of that said, individuals that are not vaccinated, that are indoors, they're older than two years of age, they should be masked. At this time, considering the contagiousness of Omicron and the fact that we're still in a major surge, even though the, the case rates are declining, and um, I think we've definitely hit that peak um, pretty much throughout the entire country, I still wear my mask indoors, right? Um, I mean, obviously, when I'm not home, but <laughs> if I'm not, if I'm home, I don't wear it. But um, when I'm out and about, um, I'm going to the store or shopping. If I'm in an indoor environment, even though I am vaccinated and boosted, I even had COVID, right? So um, you talk about somebody that has been, <laughs> um, that has probably a good degree of immunity um, to all of this stuff. I still wear my mask indoors, despite being fully vaccinated and boosted boosted and having had COVID-19. Now, outdoors, people generally do not require masks, except when they are in outdoor spaces where they might have sustained close contact with others, um, especially a large amount of others. And so we're talking, you're out at sporting events, at a concert, um, large races or athletic events, etc. This is especially true if you're not vaccinated or if you live with someone or others that might not be vaccinated um, or that are more likely to have complications if they were to acquire a SARS-CoV-2 infection or COVID-19, right? So if you live with someone that has a weakened immune system, if you live with someone that is elderly, if you live with someone that is on medications that can weaken their immune system, um, you should be careful in that large gathering, even if it's outdoors, and, and wear a mask. Um, and so, and, and if everybody did that, right, we think about it again. Not only can the wearer potentially, right, have some benefits and protection from wearing a mask, um, especially if they're vaccinated, right, it's literally an additional layer of protection if you are vaccinated and boosted and you wear your mask, even outdoors in a, a large gathering. Um, but especially, we need to think about one another, ladies and gentlemen, right? And so it's not just about you, um, but it's about the other people around you at those events. It is about the people that are around them. And if we all thought about each other like that, right, we would all be protecting one another and have an even greater level of protection from this disease. And so just something to think about, ladies and gentlemen, um, as you will see, um, this is kind of foreshadowing to one of our later steps, but considering right the levels of virus and transmission rates in your community that too can help you decide whether or not you need to wear a mask in your day-to-day -day activities and so if the rates are really really high right it would make sense maybe to wear that mask even outdoors when when walking the streets if you're going to be passing people um it's just really about right making these decisions um and being amenable to these decisions making being amenable to um, changing these decisions, right, or the recommendations changing because the disease, the spread of the illness um, uh, is changing on a constant basis. 
One thing, too, I want to get out there. Federal law requires you to wear a mask on planes, buses, trains and other forms of public transportation. You must also wear a mask when indoors at any transportation hub in the United States and in outdoor areas on a particular vehicle. So let's say you are on a ferry, <laughs> one of my favorites, the Staten Island Ferry. You're chilling outdoors. The law does not require you to wear a mask in that specific context. But I just want to put that out there, right? That's the law we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. So if you are ticketed or you feel like you're accosted by um, law enforcement for not wearing a mask in any of these venues, well, guess what? You're on the wrong side of the law, right? So just want to put that out there for your knowledge. And now let's move on to how to choose a mask. Um, really, you know, there are so many types. You have cloth masks, you have uh, manufactured masks with more than one layer. One thing that we need to be understanding of is that, right, a mask with two or more layers um, is really what we need to be shooting for. It needs to cover the mouth, nose, and the chin, right? I know you think you look cool with your nostrils hanging out um, and the mask just above, you know, your lips, but I mean, to me, that doesn't look cool. If you feel like you're cool, maybe you are, but I think in people that I've talked with, we all agree that it looks silly and ridiculous. And you don't benefit from that, right? Um, neither you don't benefit from it protecting you from inhaling whatever's around you, including the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You definitely don't benefit others around you because you're still spreading it through your big nostrils. And so just wear the mask the right way. You want it to cover the mouth, the nose, and the chin, two or more layers, and it should fit snugly along the sides of your face, not leaving any gaps or holes. Now, as far as masks don't, do not wear any mask made of material that makes it hard to breathe. This is common sense, right? You should not be struggling to breathe um, in your mask, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the exception kind of is like an N95, a little bit higher grade mask, gives you a little bit more protection for the wearer. Um, and so those can be a little hard to, harder to breathe in. Um, but you still should be able to breathe pretty comfortably, especially if you're not overexerting yourself um, with that mask. Avoid masks with exhalation valves or ports. Um, those look cool, actually, and it probably is more comfortable. However, it potentially allows viral particles to escape as you breathe. So really, you're just spreading a bunch of COVID in the environment if you have that mask on and are indeed COVID positive. Face shields can be beneficial with masks, right? So if you're wearing a mask and you're wearing a shield, you might have a, a little extra protection. You might even be spreading a little bit um, less virus, but face shields without masks have been found to not be effective, right? They are ineffective face shields alone. Um, and so that, I mean, I know some individuals, I even had a family member who was like, look, I'd really just like to wear the shield alone, no mask. How does that work? Is that cool? And I was like, yeah, it might be cool for you, um, but it is not as effective at protecting you and also not very good when it comes to decreasing the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And so really face shields without masks, not the way to go. Um, they have been found to be ineffective. And as cool as they might look, scarves, ski masks, balaclavas are not substitutes for appropriate, appropriate and effective masks. And with all of that, I will say, right, um, when in doubt, just wear the mask. Any mask is better than no mask. In general, wear the mask most effective, right, um, for you that fits you well and that you are able to wear consistently, correctly, and comfortably. And 
How do you wear the mask again? I know <laughs> we just went through this. Be sure to cover your mouth and your nose and your chin. Just some quick tips to improve fit. You can do the following. You can wear two masks. Um, and actually what's recommended is wearing a disposable mask underneath, right? So maybe the ones that you get from like a local pharmacy um, or drugstore or medical supply store, you wear the disposable underneath and then you can wear your cool looking cloth mask over the top. Also, you can wear a fitter or brace with your disposable or cloth mask. Um, those two are available at medical supply stores and pharmacies. Um, with three ply masks, you can actually do this cool knot and tuck um, technique, basically tying knots onto either side of the ear loops and then move the knots as close to the mask as possible. And you can fold the ends of the mask into that little loop. Um, I'm actually going to incorporate that into the show notes for you all so you can check that technique out. And that can definitely improve the fit, might even give you a little bit more protection and prevent um, additional spread of the virus. So it's a neat little trick that you can do to just get you a little bit more uh, snugger fit and potentially more protection. You can also use the elastic band or ties that can accommodate the loops of the mask for more secure fit around your neck. So you've probably seen these little cloth um, things. Sometimes they have buttons on them or other little um, uh, things that you can fasten the loops of the mask around. Um, they're actually cool and they're more comfortable to me. I don't know about anybody out there, but the masks um, with the ear loops, they irritate the heck out of my ears after a while. And so one thing that has been way more comfortable is having that little um, piece of material that you can fasten the loops of the mask around your neck. And I can even put a picture of that in the show notes as well, because it might not be clear as to what I'm talking about if you have not seen them already. And then um, finally, there are some masks that are required to be constructed and perform at a consistent high quality level. Right. And masks of this type will be labeled and contain information about the standards of the masks. Um, and so these are essentially N95 masks that we're talking about. And for these masks, you can look for the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. That's NIOSH. And what you're looking for is a designation ASTM. F3502, or it should say meets workplace performance and meets workplace performance plus. I'm going to incorporate that into the show notes as well so that those individuals out there um, purchasing the, these, these special masks, that they are acquiring products that are actually approved, right, um, for use by um, NIOSH. And for N95s, ladies and gentlemen, also I want you to check out our mask requirements on Health in Harlem. We're going to incorporate links to that as well. Um, these are probably the best and safest masks, especially when it comes to protection of the individual. Um, and they can also prevent spread of the illness as well, right? Um, but when choosing right an N95, you just must make sure that it fits well. You also should read the manufacturer's instructions inside. And the instructions not only contain information on how to properly fit the mask and wear it, but also contains information on how to properly store and clean the respirator or the mask as well. And really, the most important thing is, right, is getting a good seal on the face all around the face. This is going to fit super snug on your face um, and especially 
right? When we talk about minimizing the amount of respiratory droplets that can leak in, right? We want to achieve that 95%. That's what the 95 stands for in N95 is that 95% um, protection in preventing uh, droplets and things from leaking in, um, out and around and into around the edges of the mask. Um, and so one thing that is always recommended in addition to making sure that the mask fits your face properly and comfortably um, by having your by having a proper fitting done, also cutting your facial hair um, when wearing the respirator, that can allow a much closer fit as well. Beware of fake KN95 respirators. They are out there. Um, one of the estimates, right? Um, according to NIOSH, approximately 60% of KN95s failed evaluation and inspection by them in 2020 and in 2021. So a lot of counterfeits out there, a lot of fakes. Um, and we will also put that in our show notes on how to spot fakes and how to evaluate these masks properly. Hopefully this won't be necessary, as we said, ladies and gentlemen, until the end of time. I think we will come out of this mask wearing phase at some point, but it's really going to be um, one thing that's really going to determine that, right, is the number of individuals that have immunity. And so that's why um, vaccination is critically important as we go forward and living beyond COVID-19, but also um, we'll have a good deal of natural immunity, I think, as well, just from the amount of spread we've seen with recent variants, especially Omicron. Step three. So step three entails social distancing and testing, ladies and gentlemen. Social distancing works, okay? As much as it sucks, it definitely works. The evidence lies in what happened in 1918, right? One of the major, as we said, one of the major ways in which they, I wanna say they defeated the virus, right? Because we lived beyond the flu, right? It's a fact, life went on um, and, we, and we loved it and we made it beyond the flu. But one of the things they got, they did to get to that point, ladies and gentlemen, was social distancing. In addition to mask wearing, one of the major ways um, in which from a public health standpoint that they really got better control of that outbreak was social distancing. Um, now, when we apply that to what happened right today in the spring of 2020, we went from night and day to no distancing, no measures in place, um, to having those measures in place. And we saw the caseloads, the deaths, um, really our overwhelmed health system, right? We went from totally overwhelmed to many people dying to, you know, largely a much better place um, with regards to this pandemic in the spring of 2020 in New York City. And so social distancing works. And I'm just going to outlay briefly so we can move on because I think we all heard this so much ad nauseum over the last two years. Um, essentially, we want to close, avoid close contact with people who are sick. If possible, we want to, if possible, maintain a minimum six feet distance uh, between the person who is sick and other household members. And also part of this, right, um, entails wearing a mask, especially around individuals that might be symptomatic from COVID-19 and really just respiratory illnesses in general. We would do ourselves really, really a huge service by keeping that distance from uh, individuals that are sick or having those symptoms. If they are our family members, we want to do our best to wear a mask around them. And as much as we want to take care of them, we do those things. But when not needing to render care to them, we want to maintain that six feet distance. Indoors in public, if you are not up to date on your COVID-19 vaccines, you should 
try to stay at least six feet away from other people. Um, you want to wear your mask in those settings. And especially you really want to pay attention to these things, especially if you are at a higher risk of getting very ill or having complications from COVID-19. So those are the individuals with medical problems that are elderly, that have immune compromise or take medications that can decrease the immune system. We also want to avoid poorly vented air, poorly ventilated areas and crowds. Um, so it, if indoors, right, we want to try to bring in fresh air by opening windows and doors, if possible, really trying to ventilate that space. And if you are at an increased risk of, again, becoming very ill from COVID-19, you really would be best to bet uh, in your best interest to avoid crowded places and indoor spaces, especially when they're not uh, very well ventilated. So I am going to move on to testing, ladies and gentlemen, essentially two types of tests. There is the rapid test. I think these have become very popular. A lot of stuff coming up in the media about these rapid tests, rapid tests. And essentially these are commonly antigen tests. Um, so they are basically helping us detect, right? Pieces of the virus that might be in our system. Um, that would be evidence of an active infection. These are usually a nasal swab. They result rapidly, right? <laughs> As it implies with the name, um, usually within 15 to 30 minutes. And one thing that we really do need to understand is that the results might not be as reliable, um, especially for individuals without symptoms and individuals with symptoms even, right? Um, they, they, we just have to be really careful with these tests because they are not the most sensitive tests, meaning that they are not um, always particularly good. And, and there are different varieties of these tests, different manufacturers, um, but they are not always very, very sensitive, meaning they are not always um, super good at detecting the presence of a SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that means that a negative test can be falsely negative, right? The test can be negative when you do in fact have the infection. And so we have to be careful with this test. And that is why these tests are recommended to be followed up, right? To have um, an additional test um, in order to in try to really ensure or to at least get to a high degree of certainty of that test actually being negative. So if you tested negative, um, and especially if you have symptoms, you might want to get another test before saying that, hey, I don't have um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. The other test is a laboratory test primarily, um, meaning it is, has to be done in the lab. These are the PCR tests or nucleic acid amplification tests um, that are available. And typically, again, a sample is taken from either the nasal swab or from the saliva. These usually result in one to three days, ladies and gentlemen. So these are not rapid, right? And the results are pretty reliable for people with and without symptoms. Um, but again, we do need to um, be careful uh, with these tests as well as there can be false negative uh, results. Some common reasons to get tested. Obviously, if you have COVID-19 symptoms, right? at least five days after you have had a known or suspected close contact with an individual that is positive for COVID-19, you should consider getting a test. Um, even if you don't have symptoms, it could be beneficial 
um, because right when we talk about going about your business and potentially exposing others, if you have acquired that infection um, and, and don't have symptoms, especially, it would be good to know your status. Um, and therefore, we can understand the risks of you potentially spreading this illness to others um, for screening purposes as well for schools, workplaces, congregate settings. Um, I think many of these programs being put into place. Right. We can screen for the illness, especially for individuals that are asymptomatic carriers of the infection. Um, this is uh, one of the other recommendations for when testing might be needed before and after travel um, as well. But again, being mindful, right, if you have symptoms and you're talking about going to visit your grandmother um, for, you know, the upcoming Valentine's Day holiday, you might want to table that. You know, even with a negative test, especially a rapid test. Um, yeah, you test negative. Great. You probably have a lower chance of actually having the infection. If you do two of them, right, maybe you get to a higher degree of certainty. You could say, yes, yeah, much less likely to be COVID. Um, but I would really say that just try maybe not to go if you have symptoms, because if it's not COVID-19, it could be something else like influenza, parainfluenza, many other viruses um, in bacterial infections that you can still transmit to grandma. So we might want to table um, that trip. Before we move on, I do want to bring your attention to the CDC's coronavirus self checker. It is basically a tool that can help you really make the decision on when to seek medical care, when to uh, think about getting a test, right? It can help you in making that decision. And so that is something that we will be incorporating into the show notes. Step four. Step four really just has to a lot to do with really how we deal with information, ladies and gentlemen. I think one of the things that we can look at as a blessing and a curse is information in this age. Um, we definitely have a leg up over our ancestors and forebears, ladies and gentlemen, in the early of 20th century, and that information travels so fast, even right at times faster than the virus. Um, and as much as that has helped us in dealing with this crisis, it has also hobbled us to degrees, um, especially when we talk about the spread of misinformation and disinformation, ladies and gentlemen. And so with that said, I think we just really have to be careful as we go forward about how we deal with that information with regard to COVID-19. And in particular, I wanna talk about what happens online because we're talking about the wild, wild west when it comes to health information, when it comes to information about COVID-19. There is a ton of great information out there, ladies and gentlemen, that I think we can use to live beyond COVID-19, but then there is a good amount of information that is potentially harmful. It can be misleading, um, it could lead, even lead to one putting themselves at increased risk um, and even death. And especially when we talk about the misinformation out there um, when it comes to not only COVID itself, but even against some of the in interventions that will really help us get through this, um, for instance, with the vaccines. And so just some tips as we go forward, when we especially when we're looking online, we want to know who pays for the site, right? Some questions you need to ask, who pays for the site? It takes money to operate a website, um, and we really should know the source of funding for a site, and that should be clearly stated and readily apparent. Um, also, looking at the 
site's URL can give you hints as to where the money might be coming from and therefore what their motivations are. So anything that is ending in .gov, that is for governmental organizations, .edu for educational organizations, and .org for non-commercial entities. I would say really be wary of the .coms. I mean, yes, we have reputable organizations out there getting good information out there, um, especially when we talk about journalistic publications. Um, but also, we need to be careful with those uh, with that information as well, because it can be false and misleading. Um, and also, right, funding can determine the content featured on an organization's website, how that content is presented, and finally, what their intentions are for the owner of that site. So if they're telling you not to get vaccinated, but to buy, you know, these tablets for $9.99 a week, that'll prevent you from getting COVID-19. You got to raise your eyebrow at that, you know, um, there might be um, something, some malintent there, or at least trying to empty your pockets, right, and gain from misinforming you. Um, and that's one thing we just need to be on a lookout for. Next, you want to know what this website's purpose is. We want to know the individuals that run the site along with their funding sources to determine the purpose of the site. And this can be found out, right, by checking the site for an about page. A lot of times they should have a page where they are talking about what they do, why they do it, and who are the individuals that are putting that information on that site. Um, be mindful that there are many legitimate sites that sell medical and health related products and that the owner's desire to sell and promote products can influence the accuracy of the information that they present on the site. Um, so just be, be careful with that. Also, we want to know how current the information is on the site, right? We need to know it should be cited somewhere, how old that information is, um, and whether the research or information there is dated, especially this day and age where new discoveries are being made constantly, right? We're getting new information all the time. So we need up-to-date, reliable sources of information. How does the website owner choose, right? what links to include on their site, what sites are they linking to. Um, that also should be something that we take in mind. Um, do these other sites pay the owner to have their links appear on that site, right? Is there certain criteria that has to be met in order for a link to be included on that site? Knowing these details can really help you understand the purpose of that site. And really, um, you know, for instance, a site about mesothelioma with links to law firms might not truly be trying to serve the noble purpose of educating the public on that particular illness. All right, you get my drift? Moveon.com. What information do, about the users does the website collect and why? Um, very important to know. Are there certain details, right, about which links you click and the amount of types of supplements you buy, right? Are these tidbits of information that are going to be shared with other companies or people? Are they really just you know, taking your information and using that for monetary gain, or are they using that to, right, send you more reliable, uh, useful information in the future, such as collecting an email ad address to put you on a newsletter um, with frequently updated content from them. So just be careful and be sure to read the privacy policy and disclosures about how your information is collected and used by the site, especially if the site, right, outrightly asks you for that information. Um, and next, you want to know how does the site manage interactions with users? There should always be a way for users and visitors to contact the website owner with concerns about problems or with feedback and to ask questions. 
Um, the terms of service of using any chat rooms or discussion boards should be also be explained as to whether or not um, there's anybody moderating these discussions. And there should be some sort of statement that governs right what posts or comments the moderator chooses to include or reject. Always read online discussions before posting to make sure that you agree and are comfortable with what is being said on that site. And this is especially true with social media. Finally, when it comes to email, carefully evaluate email messages that contain health-related information, right? We wanna consider the email's origin and the purpose of that email. We also, um, we, wanna, we, we need to understand that there are some companies that use email to promote products and to attract people to their websites and services. And we must be very critical of any companies that are emailing us, right? That are promoting a medical product or service, um, especially without corresponding scientific evidence to back up whatever their claims are. Um, and even if they do, right, still be wary of what is being presented to you. If you really need more information, consult your medical professional. And that really segues into, right, variants. We know that there will be more variants, ladies and gentlemen, and just having information available. We are in the information age, right, to learn about new variants cropping up as we did um, with what happened in South Africa. Um, I think it was just unbelievably beneficial in that we were able to prepare for that, right? We were able to say, hey, um, we are noticing that there are higher numbers of breakthrough infections with this particular variant, right? Um, therefore, individuals that are fully vaccinated and even boosted should consider wearing masks um, appropriately, employing social distancing measures, um, again, because this particular variant, Omicron in particular, is super contagious, right? We were able to make changes in our behavior to mitigate the risks of this illness. And that's what I think we really need to do as we go forward. Pay attention to the information that's out there. Make sure that we are um, acting on reliable information, ladies and gentlemen, and really trying to filter out all of the not so good and even nonsense information that is definitely out there that definitely will continue. Um, so we really need to be better in how we scrutinize and use information going forward. The last thing that we will discuss in terms of using information, right, is not just uh, how we interact and use and gather information online and in the media around us, but really using information to our advantage, especially when it comes to understanding the spread of the coronavirus um, and really what's happening around us in our communities, in the country as a whole. As we said, we live in the information age, ladies and gentlemen. And so considering the amount of surveillance of this illness, we can have the heads up when the levels of infection are high around us. We knew, right, as we said with Omicron, when that emerged, um, we knew well in advance that this was something that could be spreading in the community. We were able to mitigate that in certain ways, right, and maybe recommending masks, um, changing those recommendations, and focusing on things like social distancing, right? So what I'm saying is that understanding what is happening around us using tools available to us. We have actual trackers of the virus and its spread and the emergence of variants through various means. One example, the New York Times actually has a virus tractor. You can put your zip code in and it'll tell you the levels of infection in your community, right? How prevalent the virus is, how many cases there are, um, and whether or not the chances of you acquiring the infection are low, medium, or high. 
Um, so these are tools that we can really use to our advantage. Johns Hopkins has a tracker. So many resources out there that can help us in making day to day decisions, right? When whether or not we need to wear a mask when we go to the store, even if we are vaccinated and boosted, these things can be extraordinarily beneficial. And I think it is really in our best interest to use this information to our advantage, especially this is the era of smartphones and smart devices, tablets, watches. We can get these alerts. Um, we know that researchers are developing new right novel ways of tracking the virus cdc actually just put out a report um, talking about looking at sewage systems right and how this is that can tell us the um, potential burden of disease when it comes to uh, the virus and, and emerging outbreaks so all of this information is there for us and we need to use it ladies and gentlemen in order to live beyond COVID-19. That is going to be extraordinarily critical. We have that available to us and we needed to use it to our advantage, right? Because again, we lived beyond the flu, right? A hundred years ago with none of these tools available to us. And so if that said, I think we are in a position where we can, right, get ahead of this virus and use this information to our advantage so that we can indeed, once again, live beyond COVID-19. Step five and step five, ladies and gentlemen, this is where I have to maybe get a little political. Um, one thing I can assure you is that on Health in Harlem, we are a nonpartisan show, a nonpartisan organization. What we strive to do is really talk about health policy from the standpoint of benefiting the largest number of people possible and especially emphasizing right equitable Healthcare for all individuals, um, good access to high quality health care, and also dealing with things like health literacy, the challenges with health literacy. Right. Um, so we are fans on this program of any legislation, any laws, any mandates, whatever. Right. That helps us achieve those goals. And so with that, I will say that I think we all have learned a lot or at least saw a lot when it comes to the impact of the virus, not only directly in its disease causing form, right? In terms of putting people in the hospital, taking people off of this earth. Um, but when we talk about the economic disruption, when we talk about the impact to our mental health and having to go through all of this with social distancing and the mask wearing, the fear and anxiety that comes with this looming illness all around us, um, I think, we really need to take a step back and learn lessons from this. And with that said, step five is really as we live beyond COVID-19, right? That is the goal to live beyond this disease and future diseases like COVID. Um, I think it becomes important to really advocate for change. Now, that's going to happen in a variety of ways. I'm not going to get too political with it or put my ideas out there, but I think we all really acknowledge that things need to change, especially when we talk about how we look at illness, how we view that in terms of our professional lives, how organizations view illness. Um, and especially when we talk about things as simple as or seemingly simple as sick leave, right? Um, if you have symptoms, right, you're coughing and sneezing everywhere and hacking and, you know, you're sick it might not even be COVID. It could be the flu. It could be a common cold. But 
our institutions, especially when we talk about the places we're employed, right, there should be policies in place to allow individuals to take a sick day or two or three, right? One, so that they can recover fully. And when they come back, they are more productive and, you know, able to carry out their duties uh, comfortably and even happily being that they'll be feeling better having had that rest, but also to protect the rest of the workers in that environment that might be around that individual, right? So that the next time that another COVID-19 situation arises, we won't have individuals that are conflicted, right? If they have symptoms, right, that um, won't want to stay home because they know that they're going to miss out on a paycheck or that they could be released from their employment or fired, right? That should be something that we we really need to address um, as we go forward. We also need to talk about how we um, put resources towards research and development when it comes to preventing pandemics in the first place. Um, some of those priorities shifted in decades past where we were left particularly vulnerable here in the United States and around the world when it came to dealing with a crisis like this. Everything from research dollars that I put forth to um, study how these diseases emerge to even how we right deal with them in terms of stopping the spread um, of these illnesses, um, the, you know, political background with all of this stuff and the controversies that are mo- arose, whether to lock down and, you know, how we proceed in making sure the economy stays afloat. These are things that we need to work out well in advance. And so I say all of this to say that, right, as we move forward in our political moves, um, in voting one, right? We want our voices heard, so we need to vote um, and vote accordingly, but we need to vote for individuals that are going to be proactive in addressing these challenges going forward, right? Not only with COVID now, but again, I said, as, as, as I said early in pre- preparing for the next pandemic, we need individuals that are taking a more proactive approach um, in dealing with these issues, even when it comes to childcare, right? Just how is childcare handled in this country? Um, there should be things in place that where, you know, if children do have to be from school because there is some new infection going around that could be potentially dangerous, especially to the children, right? That should not always necessitate mom and dad having to be home and missing out on work um, because there is no childcare policy or policy in place to ensure that they have adequate, affordable child care, right? Um, definitely not trying to, delve, as I said, delve into the political realm on any of this, but these are things that we do need to think of as a society um, as we go forward to live beyond COVID-19 and to, again, prepare for um, what might lie ahead. It is crucially important, ladies and gentlemen, that we really think about these issues as a collective and deal with those going forward. And so with that said, I'm, I'm going to stop talking your ear off because I've definitely done a good amount of that. Um, I do want to leave you all with the message of hope that I hope was conveyed in this program. And I, do, I truly do think it is possible for us to live beyond this virus. Um, and I think there is plenty of opportunity and a chance for us to, to write, live happily even with this in our midst and with these five steps i think we can get much closer to uh, being 
in that reality as we go forward. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to um, thank you all for listening to this program. I also want to thank my colleagues and family at WHCR, especially Angela Harden, the general manager of the station, Tina Dixon, the production manager, and all the other Health in Harlem family out there. I want to shout out my team, Giorgio, Reed, Anastasia, um, also Michael Holmes, Ashley Francis, um, Mia, and Ben Suferi. I just want to shout all of them out. Hope you all are doing well. And we will reconvene uh, very shortly. Also, ladies and gentlemen, as we say each and every week, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself. Thank you.